Apparently, um, the other half of your organization has failed us today, Terry. The other half? The other half. Stand up if you're the other half. That's right. Much to your surprise, he uh, did not have the video turned on. So now we have to go back to the beginning. How does the, how does that impact you? It doesn't. Okay. Okay. Am I ready to go now? Can I go? Yes, you may. Okay. Thank you for your permission once again. December 3rd, 2017, lecture discussion number four on the book of Joel. Okay, again, to repeat all of this, because it's, it's Supper Dave's fault, he didn't turn the video on. In our little brief wandering into the book uh, written by the prophet Joel, we've noted, we have limited ourselves, we've looked at the components only that are shared by Joel 2 and Revelation 9. So that's where we have been. Now, again, let me, it feels funny to repeat this. I don't ever do this, but here I am doing it. Joel and Revelation are much greater than just Joel 2 and Revelation 9. It's extraordinary, and there are so many topics, and we're going to have to go through all of them one by one for thousands of years. But anyway, where we are primarily now, we have limited our little merry band of you to Joel 2 and Revelation 9. And I made the comment just a few minutes ago, this is still weird for me because of Dave. If you want to read ahead... This is where I would think you would want to go. And it's this again. It says this. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a big deal. The name of the Lord, of course, is Jesus Christ. It means, as you know, Yeshua. It means salvation. He is the Lord God and there is no other Joel 2.27. So there's Joel telling you something that hardly anybody wants to say in today's climate. There's only one name that can save you. That's why I get so frustrated at these churches that will not say his name. Whosoever calls upon the name of Christ shall be saved. He is the Lord God, and there is no other. Profound truths in the book of Job. No other name will save. He is the one you call out to him. His very name is salvation, and you shall be given salvation. And as always is the case... Joel and all of the Old Testament is filled with portraits of Christ. That is its purpose. That is its design. Unfortunately, that is a mystery. That is information that is hardly known in or out of the church that the whole function of the Old Testament is to portray Jesus Christ. It's how he wrote it. It's why he wrote it. That's what it does. That's how you can tell it's him. That's how you can tell which books are inspired and which are not. If they don't teach of Christ, then that's why they were left out. So that's how you, you figure it. You can look at the Old Testament, find those portraits of Christ, find the New Testament complement or explanation of it, and you understand who wrote it, who the author of it is. And it's our task, it's been tasked to us to search for, for him. Find Christ. That is our foremost responsibility when we're reading the Bible. Find Christ. And if you're reading the Old Testament trying to apply it to you, I've said it thousands of times, it does apply to you, but it's not about you. 
Sorry, not really fake sorry. That's not what you're supposed to do is find yourself in the book. Get a mirror. Save yourself some time. Find Christ. So, that's where I would begin. And with all of this in mind, let me give you some more. Uh, did you know that uh, the... Uh, who is the father of Superman, do you know? Yeah, I'll tell you. Okay. The guy that wrote that obviously knew his book of Joel, and he understood his Elohim. Jehovah Elohim, that's what that means. So that was written in the 1940s, right? I assumed everyone over the age of, well, 65 would know that. Maybe not. Anyway, <laughs> don't feel bad. Where was I? I completely lost my mind. That's where I was. <laughs> oh, going to be a long day. Joel 2, 23 through 24 is uh, where you will find pictures of Christ. This is the former rain. Former rain. And the latter rain. How many rains? Do the math quickly. Don't use your phone. Two rains. Two comings of rain. That'll tell you what you can find Christ right there. Joel 1, uh, 8 through 9. Be another place to go look in your spare time. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. In other words, Joel is telling Israel to mourn for the husband of her youth. Christ is the husband in this verse. This is difficult for people. Christ treats Israel like she is a divorced wife who committed adultery. He treats the church as if she is like a virgin bride. Those are the symbols. He's not married to two women at the same time. This is symbols for us. One is a divorced wife that's committed adultery. The other is a virgin bride awaiting his return. So those are the two symbols that he uses. And you can figure out what he is doing with us by first understand which symbol applies to you. Or me, or us, and which applies to Israel. Dr. Fruchtenbaum says this wonderful thing. I hope I quote him accurately. Um, he says, knowing the distinctions between church, the church and Israel is the single most important thing to avoid error in the Bible. You don't know those distinctions. You're going into the ditch. Can't stop you. Head first, full speed, no transmission, no brakes. All you've got is an accelerator and both foot on it. If you do not know that there are forces that address Israel only, verses that address the church only, Israel is treated as if she is a divorced, adulterous bride or wife. Uh, the church is being treated as if she is a betrothed virgin bride. Not knowing the difference, knowing the distinctions, being able to figure out the distinctions. Sometimes there are verses that apply to both. And that's a bigger challenge. But knowing that will keep you out of the 
error-filled uh, ditch of theology. Again, Christ is the husband in this verse, uh, one, uh, chapter 1, 8 through 9. Israel will mourn. When you see Israel mourning, the place that uh, they mourn the most in Scripture, in my view, is Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. And so now I've got Zechariah and Joel. That's not a surprise. They lend one another explanations. They discuss many of the same subjects differently. That makes them extremely valuable one to another. So when you read Joel, you will now go ahead and read Zechariah simultaneously as best you can. And uh, that, again, uh, becomes a valuable tool of study. For example, Zechariah 12.8 tells us that in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Pretty soon, I'm finally getting to the place where I'm going to do the eight-stage battle of Jerusalem. I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm not going to limit it to just the... Uh, book of Revelation or just the tribulation, I'm going to go all the way back in history and find every single time Israel has been or Jerusalem has been hit and put them all together. You would expect they would relate, wouldn't you? And they do. In that day, the, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord. That's Christ. What's the obvious question right here? What day is he talking about? In what day will the feeble... I was telling the story to Marie earlier today uh, that I thought... Well, five years ago, I bought these push-up thingies that you put on your hands and you have a little counter. And I thought, okay, I haven't done this for a long time because it's painful. And it's probably been four or five years. And I have lost a little weight and not a lot, not anywhere near that I need. And But I thought, well, maybe I should try to do push-ups on this. And I couldn't find the little handhold thing, so I just got a couple of... 20-pound weights and put them on the ground, and I'm going to do push-ups. Because five years ago, I could do 35, 40 push-ups correctly. And it has a little counter, and you have to go down and hit the counter properly, or it doesn't record. And So I'm going to see how many I can do. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. Well, that's good news for me, because I was struggling those push-ups. I'm up to 18 now. But I started with seven. Thought I was going to die. <laughs> Turned around and thought, well, there must be a sandbag on my back or something. I don't know what happened here. But the feeble, and I'm becoming more and more feeble. I cannot stop it. It is discouraging. I'm hoping that Dr. Peter is right about this uh, change of genetic material available to me. I'm sure he is. What's it mean to be like David? Let's get into that a second. Joel 3.10. You're familiar with this verse. Let the weak say I am strong. Zechariah. The feeble in that day shall be like David. Joel 3.10. Let the weak say I am strong. Joel 2.28. Your old men shall dream dreams. The, all of that relates back to Zechariah 12.8. The old, the feeble, the weak will be like David. 
and the house of David, the ones that aren't old, that aren't weak, they're going to be like Christ. What does that mean? Are they going to be Christ? No, he's God. But they have a relationship to the angel of the Lord. Where is the angel of the Lord primarily in Scripture? Plagues of Egypt, Joshua, Sodom and Gomorrah, Melchizedek. So the Jewish people, the old among them, the very old, the feeble, the ones that can only do as many push-ups as me, they're going to be like David. In that day when Jerusalem is attacked, the weak will say they are strong. The old men will dream dreams. The feeble shall be like David. The days, uh, I'm sorry, the David shall be like the angel. Uh, that is really difficult to understand, in my view. The meaning is not easily discerned. What's the first place we will go? Why did they? Why did God pick David? Why didn't he say the feeble will be like Saul? Saul could rip an ox in half. Why didn't he say the, the feeble will be like... Pick somebody. What's that? Samson. But he doesn't. David. What does it mean to be able to fight like David? So this is quite the chore. The David analogy, very difficult. It tells you right here that David was more so unusual than typically characterized. He killed a lion. Tried that lately? We'll all line up to see who can kill the lion. What did he have to kill the lion with? Read the story? He kills a bear. We can do the bear killing thing pretty easy. Bait one in here in a couple of weeks. Go find one that's hibernating, pull him out. He should be in a good mood. Bring him in. Let's see who of uh, which of us can kill him. Who's betting on me? No one. Let the record show not a single person is putting any money on the feeble guy who's trying to do push-ups. Think about this. David throws a smooth stone at the velocity necessary to penetrate the helmet of Goliath and sink into his forehead. So it's embedded in his skull. What's the math problem now? Feel free to calculate the feet per second. Here I will help you. Isaac Newton. Force equals mass times acceleration. Get your phones out for this. Figure out the feet per second. Estimate the metal gauge of the helmet. How big is Goliath? He is a big man. How heavy is his sword? We know how David picks that sword up and cuts his head off with it while he's still alive. Did you read the story? So Goliath has a projectile that goes through his helmet goes into his skull and is embedded in the skull, David picks that sword up. So go figure out how heavy that sword is and decapitates him with it. And picks the skull up and takes it back to Jerusalem. As you know, it's important where he buries it. He buries it in the very place that Christ chooses to be crucified. So, 
Estimate the metal gauge of the helmet. Determine just reasonably the thickness of the skull of this giant Goliath, Golgoliath, I'm sorry, Golgoliatha, Golgotha. Figure out the depth of the wound. This is projectile ballistics, isn't it? My personal favorite. Same for Nick. I also like to do launch angle, bat speed, swing plane, and weight transfer. That's another thing I spend my time doing. You would think I do productive things, but no, I don't. I bought a device. This is really terrible. I can put it on the bottom of a bat, and that device will tell your phone how, what my swing plane is. Do I keep my hands inside the wall? Do I get my hands in here, or do I cast my hands out? It'll tell me that. It'll give me a three-dimensional image of me, not a pretty picture. But it'll do it, and it'll tell me what my launch angle is. I want about 13%. I'll take anything above 5 to 20%. But if I can get 13% uh, launch angle, then I'm happy. 13 degrees, sorry, not percent. But also tell me the velocity of my swing and whether or not my back foot is operating correctly. It's a marvelous, incredible machine. I spent money for that. How weird am I? I don't have any money. I had to sell one of the children. So far, they haven't figured out where they live yet. Anyway, I'm particularly intrigued by all of this. But I'm also really fascinated, if I had to pick one of all of that, uh, even though David is amazing, I would pick Joel 3.3. All of this so that you can start to get ahead of me. Some of you I know like to do that, and it's a valuable thing because it'll be a while to get here because of the Christmas season right now. Here's Joel 3.3. They have cast lots. You'll understand why this is where I go in Joel all the time. They have cast lots. Let me put that on the board in case I'm not emphasizing it correctly. Cast lots. Ooh, boy. For my people. What, who are they? They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as a payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. And I'm going to propose when we get ahead, get down to here that Joel 3.3 solves the reason, gives you the purpose, gives you the information that you need for why Christ included the casting of lots when he, in his crucifixion. There's the answer. There's the Old Testament complement to it. Now, you can also go to Genesis 3. Everything goes to Genesis 3, I think, eventually. But Christ included Psalm 22:18 into his crucifixion. It didn't apply to him in the sense of what you might think. It, but it does apply to him in a different way, in a different sense. Psalm 22, as you know, is the hind of the morning. It's the deer of the dawn. It's a song that Christ uses to bring Israel to mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. So, many roads to go down, to navigate, to perambulate, which we shall do soon. But now, because this is what it is, the winter solstice, and as is always the case this time of year, I receive many concerns. I believe it best to include some that we can as deliberately as I can do it. I give it some kind of deliberative attention. 
if I'm able. The most common of these issues that rise up, I should do that, I think, because of this time of year. As time will allow, I'll do the best I can. Those are two relative term phrases. Lower your expectations. I did a bit of this last Sunday. It is unavoidable, sadly, because of the paralysis that comes over the church at Christmas time. The church, I'm looking back there at the nativity scene. It is completely anti-biblical. It's lovely, costs good money, but as long as you know that it's wrong, you're okay. It's when you don't know that it's wrong that you're in trouble. That's the paralysis. And somebody will come along and pick that scene apart and you won't know how to respond because you think it's real or right. It's neither right nor real. That would be the same thing, wouldn't it? But here's the latest uh, example of the churches, and the church has the usual fear and trembling here, the latest offering, if you will. The form is always the same with these things. It's rare to discover any significant deviation, and that leads me to conclude that it's mostly, if not uniformly, copied. People don't haven't thought of it, they just found it and copied it. And they do that, in other words, it's seldom someone's actual incorporated belief. When they do it, whoever places this into the arena, and the arena today is no longer do we write letters to the editor, which is what we used to do of the newspaper. It's now the Internet and Bookface and Tube Me, right? And they, whoever takes this stuff, and they, they are convinced of its unassailability. They think they have an undefeatable champion. That sound familiar? They, the prevailing logic that they pre- present, their positive can't be cracked. Here we go again. And, and such thinking is inadvisable for those who hold these monistic philosophies. You'd think they knew this by now, but no, they don't know. They never taught. Remember I said a few years ago, the people on the East Coast in these large cities, they don't know a single person that drives a pickup truck or has a handgun permit. They don't know us. They don't want to know us. To, uh, to them, we're some kind of savage, illiterate doofuses. So they never talk to us. They never listen to us. They don't know that their ideas are, in fact, elementary. And that's being kind. Infantile would be best. So this one that I'm going to do today is mostly shaped like this. And the atheist that gives it to you will come across uh, as contemplative, deeply concerned for you, for me. And he just cannot overcome this one problem. Oh, my. That's the presentation countenance, if you will. So here it goes. And this is a quote from the contemplative monist, evolutionary philosopher. Be suspicious when you run into one that's concerned for you. Here's what they will say. I have always found the problem of evil to be the strong argument against the existence of God, or at least against a good God. For example, God always allows cancer in children. Who does this benefit? Certainly not the child. 
So there you have it. That is the presentation. Now, of course, this surfaces this time of year for obvious reasons. The emphasis on the child. It's always about the children. Don't you feel bad for the child? But aside from that, notice for today the inherent flawed assumptions. Let's just go through them as fast as I can. First obvious flaw is the so-called problem of evil. Let's ask the quick question. Is evil a problem? For whom is evil a problem? What's implied? I have always found the problem of evil. What's implied there? To be the strong argument against the existence of God. What's implied there? That evil, the very fact that evil occurs, is not overcomable. That it's a problem for whom? God. He's either evil himself or he doesn't exist. Right? Is evil, let's just ask that, is evil a problem for God? And what do you mean by God, by problem? Is it something that is unsolvable? Are you trying to say to me that the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God of creation who created time and is outside of time, he is unable to reason his way through evil? This supposed unresolvable mystery. He can't handle it. My goodness, too tough. Oh, what shall I do? I'm just God. I can't get myself through this. There's a problem. Oh, does God have problems? When you put problem, it can't be God. God has no problems. What makes that impossible? Omniscience. Omnipotence. Omnipresence. Omnibenevolence. The problem of evil is not a problem for God. Never for God. It's only problematic for the weak-minded. That would be us. Humans. We're the idiots in the lesson here. As always is the case. The old adage when you, you come to the poker table and you can't find the sucker, it's you... Well, when you come to one of these philosophical questions and you can't find the idiot, it's us. We be the idiots. The Bible, my goodness, the Bible is overflowing, saturated with the solution to evil. That's what it does. It's all it does. There is no problem. There's a solution. The problem, again, is never God's. It speaks, the Bible does, of evil as the absolute opposite of an impasse or a stalemate. The Bible says about evil that it is literally nothing for God to solve. In the sense that it is, it is not something that he did not reason his way through. God had the solution to evil before he created anything else. Revelation 13.8. He created it before the foundations of all things. The book of life, the registry of the saved, these are they who call upon the Lamb, the one slain before He created time itself. Give you a couple of things to mess with while I move on. Time is a foundation of creation. So is gravity. So is light. I'll stop right there. I keep going. We'll get back to what the foundations are at some point. 
But before he created time, before he created gravity, before he created uh, particle-based light, and he is the primal light that makes matter into uh, from energy, he solved evil. That's what he says. Obviously, evil is not God's problem. It's mankind's problem. It's the angelic host's problem. So refuse to allow the premise that there's a problem. Or at least understand who the problem attaches itself to. Attaches itself to. Why does mankind, why do some angels choose evil? There's your real question. Why do they have any will? Why do they have the will, the ability to choose evil? To reject their creator? Obviously, that's the case. Atheism does not allow for will. I've said it thousands of times. I'll say it another thousand, I think, before I'm done. Atheism denies the actuality of will, as you know. Atheists will never concede that man has any will of even the smallest amount. So, where does evil come from in the mind of the atheist? Remember, the origin of all of this is Genesis 3 and Ezekiel 28, 16. The abundance of your traffic uh, and, and Satan and Eve, the woman. You, you will begin to recognize the elements of these presuppositions very quickly. Illness, number one, is an unjustified consequence brought upon the world by an evil agency. That is what they always say. Our evidence that no intelligent creative entity exists. Natural disasters See number one, natural disasters are the same as illness. They are unjustified and they are evidence that God doesn't exist or that he is evil. And then the third one is always the same. Free will is an illusion. You have none. Does anyone here think that they have the illusion of free will? Do you ever doubt your ability to to manipulate your own will, to utilize your own will? To Does anybody doubt that you have free will? I've never met a person that says they don't have free will that isn't, uh, what's the word I want? <sighs> Stupid. No, they're really not. They know they have free will. They want you to believe that you don't. It is just clear control-based mechanism. It's always been that way. So all I have to do is tell them, listen, you believe you don't have free will. He's forced to say to me, yes, he really doesn't believe that about himself, but he wants me to believe it about myself. That's how it works. It's a con game. It's always been a con game. It's gone on for centuries. And all of these things are the same. The striving to convince the unthoughtful that immortality is a myth. It is a relentless application of non-existence, nothingness, to existence or eternity. Let me repeat that. They're constantly trying to apply non-existence to existence. It's illogical. But that's what they're doing. They take the characteristics of non-existence or nothingness and they try to mix it in with the characteristics of eternity or immortality or existence. What is illness? It is physical death over time what it is. So is aging. Natural catastrophe is physical death by outside force. 
the irony of those who fund the eugenics industry in this country pretending to weep over children childhood sickness is amazing to me. I will be for the extinguishing of as many children as I possibly can make money doing eugenics. Let's make no mistake, eugenics is an attempt to kill the poor. That entire industry, eugenics industry, uh, what it does is kill the poor. Why do they want? Why did Margaret Sanger want to kill the poor? She built an empire that does nothing but kill the poor. It's focused on. It's driven to kill the poor. Ask yourself, why do they want to kill the poor? The irony, again, of those, let me repeat this, who fund the eugenics industry to present a, a thought experiment pretending to weep over childhood sicknesses is not just irony, it's disgusting. Why do monists and evolutionists and atheists, why do they support eugenics? Asking their hardly disguised, disingenuous, why does God allow cancer in children? How does this benefit the child? Why does, why do you kill children? How does that benefit the child? How long do these discussions I have with these people last? They're usually over right here. Note the damage assumption. God's primary function is to only provide benefit to man. Is that God's, is that God's role? Is that what he does? Is that what this teaches? That God's here, God exists for one purpose and that is to cater to you and me. Provide us benefit? You find that in there, get back to me. Look on every single page. That should take you a while. God's primary function is only to provide benefit to man. In effect, allow man to bathe in sin and perpetuity, which is the never ending of death. So as God defines death. So to repeat all of that, physical death is an intermediate state, a temporary status, one that has an end. The monists are constantly or continually trying to apply non-existence to existence, the eternal to the temporary, and hopelessness to hope. That's what they do. That's the premise of every all of these things. They also want to make God the source of evil, and they want death to be from the living God. It is what they do. They cannot stop themselves. It happens every December. It's an onslaught. And ultimately, it is the subject of the book of Joel. And hopefully... I will convey that clearly to you so that you will see all of what I've just said is in Joel and Revelation 9, which is Joel, and Zechariah 12, which is Joel and Revelation 9. That's how it works. And Psalm 22. We'll see how I do, but that's my plan. (sighs) Okay, anyway, so. Back we go to these three woes. We have three woes. I worked so hard on woe, 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 your boat, and nobody laughed. And so I'm going to fight it again until somebody gives it to me. It's, it's very <laughs> Yeah, I got booze in the back table. 
being booed here is actually exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I have these three woes. And so we're going to go back here. And perhaps you have all observed that progress into the third woe has been very minimal. We've hardly even touched it. It is unbelievably more powerful, if you will, more extensive than the first two. In fact, more so than the first two put together. I can't get out of the first two. So wait till we try the seventh trumpet. It's really going to be a long thing. Can I get to 300 lectures on the book of Joel? What, are you kidding? Of course I can. It's <laughs> not a challenge at all. But the first two woes are filled with implications. And it is a consuming process to run down all the paths that present themselves. Joel 2, as you remember, describes the first woe, the fifth trumpet. Some disagree, as some are predisposed to do. They do not think that, that there is a connection between Joel 2, Revelation 9. I don't see how they can come to any other conclusion. The alternatives to the Revelation chapter 9 interpretation are not viable, in my opinion. For example, Joel 2.2 2, 2 describes this invading force as a people, great and strong, a people. The like of whom has never been seen, nor will there ever be any such after them. Joel 2 says what's going to hit Jerusalem, no one has ever seen anything like it, and it's a people. And you'll never see anything like it ever again. You get one shot at witnessing them. Joel 1 describes them that, that attack Jerusalem as locusts. With the teeth of lions. How big is a lion's tooth? Fortunately, I haven't directly experienced it, but I would estimate they're like this. I used to, as Christopher and Eric will testify, I used to read the bedtime story, John Henry Patterson, The Lions of Sabo. Because I thought it was a fantastic bedtime story. And they have agreed and they're doing it to their children. Is that not true? Not, not yes. Neither one of them moved, but it was such a good idea. It made them into the men they are today. John Henry Patterson was amazing. That was a Christian man of extraordinary faith. And what he went through fighting that lion that he thought was a demon. He could not figure out where the intelligence of this animal came from. And there are two of them, and they acted in concert. And they were very, very remarkable beings, creatures, lions. They're clearly lions, but they were not like any lion that you've ever seen or that I have seen. And their teeth were extraordinary. They were very powerful. What they could do was amazing. And he fought them and killed them both. It took him a long, long time. And many, many men died until he was able to accomplish it. And he wrote, don't go see the movie. Read the book. The book's extraordinary. The movies, what's that word I want, starts with C, has an R in it, an A, and a P. Now, don't go do that. Movies, why do we have Hollywood? Hollywood just should be flushed. Let's just get rid of it. Go, I don't know what else we can do. It's just pure junk. And the people in it are absolutely filled with, with the most vile concepts you can imagine. Okay. Joel 1 describes the locusts with the teeth of lion. How big does it have to be to have a tooth of a lion and a teeth of lions in it? Joel 2.6, the people who are attacked by these 
creatures writhe in pain. That's exactly Revelation 9. They cannot be killed. They only can be inflicted, tormented. All faces of the people attacked are drained with color. Joel 2.7 says the invaders run like mighty men. Oh, my goodness. Where is the first mention of mighty men in Scripture? Genesis 6-4. What are they, the mighty men of Genesis 6-4? They're the Nephilim. The first mention of the phrase mighty men, Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim of the pre-flood world. Joel 2, 4-5, their appearance is like the appearance of horses. You should note this really quickly. Horses were not agricultural. They were not farming animals at the time of Joel. They were military devices. If you had horses, you had war material. Their appearance is the appearance of horses, like the appearance of a military horse. What does that mean to Joel? Like a strong people set in battle. That's what Joel is describing. Joel 2.11, all of this occurs within the context of the day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? Is a rhetorical question. Carries the negative. No one can endure it. That, the point being, this is not an insect plague. Little tiny grasshoppers. This is something that no one has ever seen, nor will they ever see it again. Revelation 9 describes that. It is a people that have characteristics never witnessed. Again, that is the description of Revelation 9. So with Joel 2 established as the Old Testament complement to Revelation 9, let us now proceed with our infrastructure, if you will, our substrate. Is the framing going to fit the foundation? That's the key. If it doesn't, well, then we have a logical issue. If it does, then good for us. We're on the right path. Why does Christ, now we're here we go. I hope you can, got to go fast. Why does Christ give the key to the fallen star, Revelation 9-1? A star is fallen, Christ gives him a key. He allows the fallen star to release those who have never been seen before. Before what? Is this a, were they seen pre-flood? Were they seen post-flood? Seen before by who? Thank you for the fingers. I should correct that. Thank you for, yeah. <laughs> He's not telling me there's two minutes, in case you're wondering that. She's telling me there's, there's ten minutes. <laughs> Why does this happen to me? Because I get no sleep. I don't. I have a dog that says, time for me to go outside. Two, four, six, eight. That's how it works. 2 a.m., 4 a.m., 6 a.m., 8 a.m., and then it's Lori's turn. Okay. Why does Christ allow the fallen star to release these who have never been seen before by Israel? God refers to them as his army. He calls these his army. That's Joel 2.11. The Lord gives voice to his army. Joel 2.25, my great army which I sent. That's what God says. That's Christ saying that. Christ gives the key to the fallen star who opens the abyss and out these come to attack mankind. Jesus Christ has all of the keys. He's the one who holds the keys. 
These that then come forth from the abyss are his. He gives them voice. He sent them. That's what the Bible said. You have to work that out, reconcile that. I submit that this is the central issue. It's the preeminent question of the chapter. Do these things belong to Christ who makes all things? What's the answer? Do these things that are coming out of the abyss belong? Does he own them? Are they his army? Obviously, yes. They, as all, as do all things, are owned by Christ. He owns them. He owns us. He owns me. He is God most high, possessor of heavens and earth. Everything that he has made, he owns. Do you own anything? No. Do you have stewardship? Yes. Do you think you own your children, those of you who are parents? Are any of them three? That, that ends that discussion. You don't own your dogs. I know. Christ owns everything, all things. We own nothing. It's important for your mental health to know that. Anyway, easy questions now. Why does Christ hand over the key? Why does he send these things out? Does he know they will attack humanity? Duh! He's omniscient. Seeing time simultaneously, concurrently. He must be doing this because of what? He has a plan. What's his plan? Salvation is his plan. He's building a case. He's testifying. I'm going to put it this way. He's presenting facts of his argument. Why do the locust, horse, lion teeth things agree to engage to strike and assault mankind? Do you remember that question from a while back? What, to, what do they gain? The first woe, no death. They can kill nothing for five months. It would seem like a waste of energy. It's a futile operation. We don't get anywhere here. We just run around sting people. They writhe in pain, color of their face drains out, nobody dies. What do they want to do? Is this what they want? Why do they agree to do it? If Christ is using them to present facts in a testimony, if you will, in a court trial, why do they agree? You would think they'd do something contrapositive. If nothing dies, including the locust horses, this is reduced to what exactly? Again, writhing pain. That's all we get. Five months. Nothing dies. God has an opportunity to suspend death. He doesn't need to take the opportunity. He, he just does. He adds suspension of death to these creatures that he owns. Now, are they in their original form? I've asked that many times. Here's the question that I like the most. Can the human forces inflict pain on the locust horses? In other words, do we have a fair fight? I think we do. Imagine the scene. Two massive armies pounding away at each other. Who has the most forces? By the way, who has the most forces? Humanity does. Not even close. Billions to millions. 
Imagine the scene, two massive armies pounding away at each other, and there are no casualties for five months. This is exhausting. What are the physical limitations of both sides? What do you do for energy? What do you eat? Do we have, do we have half time? Are we just constantly fighting for five months? Beating each other essentially with ball bats all day long, 24 hours a day. Wave after wave after wave. It's a shift. No one dies. Can you imagine after a couple of days of this? Or a week? Or a month? Who's up? Steve, get your bat. Go out there, hit some of these things. You're going to get stung again. Not going to feel good. But you're not going to die. Come back. Do it again tomorrow. Five months! It's amazing when you start to consider all of this. What is God, what is Jesus God doing here? More questions. Angels cannot multiply. Hi, Jennifer. Angels cannot multiply. At Genesis 6, the fallen one-third, Jude 6, left their proper domain. After witnessing the explosion of humanity, humanity demonstrates its ability to multiply. And that causes the angelic host, the fallen one-third, the, the demonic side, if you will, to react. They have a problem. Ha! Huh? God doesn't have a problem. Guess who has problems? Therefore, the most obvious of the obvious questions. What does procreation have to do with all of this here in Joel 2 and Revelation 9? Because clearly it does. Let's ask it a different way. Why did God give to man and woman and the animals, the attributes of reproduction. Propagation. Why did he do that? He did not give it to the angels. Why is it an advantage? Why do the angels want it? Why do they want to stop it? Why did God not include the ability to reproduce with the angels? They came up with a methodology, didn't they, Genesis 6? Humans can multiply by design. Angels cannot. Why the difference? Why then do demons seek seek to kill or exterminate humans? What is the connections between reproductive capability and free will? You're going to go, huh? But there's where it is. Let's try that again. Locust horses will attack humans, given the opportunity, even when it seems to be fruitless. Which means it's not fruitless. Something to be gained. What would that be? Obviously, the horsey locusts operate on the premise that physical death can affect something. What is affected? Dave answered this before we started the lecture today. I submit that the angelic realm has come to the conclusion about human attributes, characteristics. They believe something to be true, and they initiate a countering action. Obviously, they are considering the possibility, if not the reality, of human will. Free will. Decision making. However limited it might be, they recognize that it exists much to the dismay of the guy that cares about childhood diseases while he's supporting eugenics. 
He doesn't believe anything. You see, physical death is temporary. Angels of all beings know that. This is why I asked a few weeks ago, and Dr. Peter responded to it again. I asked, is the cat alive or dead? We'll get to that down the road. But Physical death is temporary. Angels know this. What then is accomplished by killing a man when you're putting him into a temporal condition? What, what did you do? You removed him from his current location. That's all you did. You temporarily suspended his participation in the physical reality. That's all you, is accomplished. Why do they want to do that? What do they get out of that? What's the benefit? <coughs> well... As we keep moving down this road, this is the 666 or the mark of the beast issue. Jesus Christ, within the mid-tribulational intermission, the recess, issues a final call. It's called the final heeding. Here's your last attempt or last chance. Those who take the mark of the Antichrist are making a free will decision with complete understanding to worship Satan, Antichrist as God, and to reject the salvation that is Christ Jesus. In the mid-trib or in the mid-tribulational period, boom, he puts it on the table. Here it is. First half of the tribulation. How many come to Christ at his final heeding, his final offering? How many? Give me a number. How many do you think come to Christ when he makes his final call? How good is he compared to Billy Graham? How many come? How many reject Satan and the Antichrist, reject the uh, 666, the mark of the beast, and accept eternal life, take the covering of Jesus' blood, the Christ's blood, reach and reach out for the hand of Christ? How many respond to him? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of millions. That's the purpose of the tribulation. And what does the Antichrist do in response? He moves to kill all that he can. What's the point? Who cares? The war is essentially over. It's a mop-up operation from here. Dead end. Dead enders. Who doesn't know it? Does the Antichrist know so what's he, there's a lot of energy to kill all these people. He's doing it. Why? Last question. Why does Jesus Christ, the Lord God of creation, go through this trouble, if you will, of trying to persuade mankind to accept his gift of salvation? He does exactly that. He's persuading, isn't he? Why does he do that? What's implied by the fact that he is doing this? How does Christ treat us? I asked that last week. How does God treat us? As if we are automations or as if we have existence? The evidence is overwhelming. He treats us as if we have existence. As if we have will. Next week, we answer all of these questions and the other 500.
just to get through Joel 1. 